You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Good evening, Valleydale. Great to see you tonight. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you're having a great week so far. It began as a normal work day for a small group of miners. On August the 5th, 2010, 33 men were working 2,300 feet below ground. These were a group of miners working in the San Jose mine in Chile. When all of a sudden there was an explosion and the main ramp, which gave them access to the ground above them, collapsed. All of a sudden these men were trapped 2,300 feet below solid granite. And there was a shelter room down there, but it didn't have very good ventilation, so they went into a tunnel. And these men were now cut off from fresh oxygen, from water, from the intercom system, and from electricity. They began using truck batteries to power the the lamps on top of their hard hats. And there was all kind of uncertainty. What were these men going to do? Were they even alive? If they were alive, how long could they last? There were emergency provisions down there, but they were were only set to uh, allow you to live for two to three days. And so they began rationing their food. They would eat two little spoonfuls of tuna. They would drink a sip of milk. They would have a biscuit. They would uh, eat a a small portion of a peach. And they, they would do that every couple of days, just to eat enough to survive and to make their food last. And so the world above them wondered what was going on. It was hot down there. 90 degrees, 90% humidity. How long could these 33 men last? They were trapped, and it was hot, and it was dangerous. Have you ever felt trapped in life? Have you ever felt like you were under the weight, not just of granite, but some type of life experience? Maybe under the weight of anxiety, and under the weight of fear, under the weight of some type of financial or relational conflict or struggle, and it, it, it just is bearing down right on top of you. And it's real, and you wonder, how long can I live like this? Uh, is there a way out? Does anybody up there care what's happening to me right here? The good news tonight is if you feel like you are trapped, deliverance is available. Tonight we're talking about deliverance. We're going to see how Israel was trapped. Israel had the country of Syria and eventually Assyria coming against them, and God was using those nations to discipline them and punish them, and their future did not look very bright. They were trapped, yet God gave a word of hope in this passage tonight that he would deliver them, and so this is a message of hope. If you're in need of hope, then please stay tuned to the word of God, because this is a message of hope. This is our 11th message on the prophet Elisha. He has become a dear friend to us by this point. We saw him when he was young as an assistant to Elijah, and now we see him as an old man who's preparing to die. He's had a long life, a fruitful and fulfilling ministry, and tonight he has one, less, one last word of hope for Israel. And then even after he dies, God does a miracle through him that we'll see tonight. It's an amazing story. The prophet Elisha, we're in 2 Kings chapter 13. So please turn there, 2 Kings chapter 13. Let's briefly talk about the context. The last time we saw Elisha, or well, the last time he appeared in 2 Kings was in chapter 9, several chapters ago. Since that time, 
40 or 50 years had passed. There's a, these are years of silence. We, we don't know exactly what was happening. We do believe Elisha continued to faithfully walk with God. He faithfully served God, but we're not exactly told. Elisha is probably 80 years old by this time. He's lived a long life. He's enjoyed a long, fruitful ministry, at least 55 or 56 years. Some people say 60 years or more was the length of his ministry. Now, we were introduced to him about the year 853 B.C., and now it's 798 B.C. Uh, You look in verse 10, and you see the son of Jehoaz. His name was Jehoash, or he's also called Joash. Joash became king in Samaria and Israel, and he reigned for 16 years. He reigned from 798 to 782. And he was just like the kings who before him, spiritually speaking. He, he, followed, he did not follow Yahweh. He said he followed the sins of Jeroboam. And what, was, what were the sins of Jeroboam? Well, back in 1 Kings 12, Jeroboam had set up two golden calves, one in Dan and one in Bethel. And it said in verse 30 that it, 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 was, a great, it was a sin to the people. And so I interpret that as they began worshiping these golden calves, just like Israel had done years ago in, in, at Mount Sinai. And so spiritually, things had not changed. Even though Elijah and Elisha had, for years had faithfully served God and had called the nation to repentance and had done miracles, they still followed the idols of, of the day. And they did not follow God. They followed Baal. And so Elisha was still following God. He was still being faithful. Now we learn in verse 14, it says, Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die. We're not told what that illness it was. We're not not told what's going on. We just know that he's sick. He's most likely in Samaria where he had a home. And Joash, it says, the king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him. Just a picture that these two had a relationship. They must have had a friendship. And Joash had probably known about Elisha for years. And he goes down and he's burdened. He had deep respect and admiration for Elisha. And he says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now that phrase should sound familiar to you. That's the same phrase Elisha used when Elijah went up into heaven. Elijah was leaving, and he's, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. My father is a, is, a, is a phrase of deep respect and admiration. And then the chariots and his horsemen uh, really means, the king is saying, hey, I realize that Yahweh, is real, his angelic army is really our protector. It's not the human army of Israel. We recognize God as the true protector of Israel, and you are his spokesman. You are our link to Yahweh. You, you have been the spiritual light in this dark time, and we recognize you as our connection to God. And so the king here is struggling. He's concerned. He knows Yahweh has been their protector. If you have to look back in verse 7, where in this chapter, where it says, for there was not left to Jehoaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. So Israel's army at this point was minimal. They they were small. They were not intimidating. And so he's saying, you know, God, you've been our protector. And he's telling Elisha this, you know, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. And so what are we going to do? You're going to die, Elisha. You're our connection to God who's been our protector. Things just look bleak. They, They look disappointing. 
They, they, look, they don't look bright. Who's going to take Elisha's place? That's the tension now in this story. Who's going to come after him? What's going to happen? Is there any hope? In the next few verses, Elisha uses an object lesson to teach the king of Israel what's going to happen. So he says, take a bow and arrows. So the king took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And so the king drew the bow. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And this was representative that the power of God would be on the king of Israel because Elisha was Yahweh's representative. So he, by putting his hand, he's saying, King, the power of God is going to be on you for what, what I'm about to teach you. He says, open the window eastward. Syria was eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. So the king took one arrow and he shoots one arrow out to the eastern window. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you, made, until you have made an end of them. Now, years earlier, the Israelites had fought the Syrians at this very place, at Aphek. Aphek was a key border town between Syria and Israel. And so this was in 1 Kings chapter 20. It says that Israel appeared as two little flocks of goats there out there in the field. That's how tiny they were. And then it said the Syrians filled the country. That's how massive they were. So on paper, things did not look very good for Israel. However, God gave King Ahab favor, which just speaks of the grace of God. Ahab was a wicked king. He was an idol-worshiping a prophet persecuting, or at least his wife did, king, and yet God gave him victory. Just the, the grace and compassion of God and the faithfulness of God to his people in spite of man's rebellion. The Syrians filled the country. God gave Israel victory and killed 100,000 Syrian foot soldiers in one day. However, King Ahab refused to eliminate all of the Syrians. He ended up making a covenant with the king, Ben-Hadad. It says in verse 20, I believe it was, that they, he made a covenant with the king. And so instead of eliminating, now he, become, he becomes buddies with the king of Syria. And so he, there was a great victory, but it was not an elimination as it should have been. And so I wonder if King Joash was thinking about that when he's thinking, Elisha now is telling him, you're going to have victory at Aphek. And I wonder if he's going, yeah, I remember King Ahab was there, but the very fact that we have to go back there is proof that Ahab didn't finish the job. And so uh, now Elisha tells him, so in the midst of, of, the, of this desperation, who's going to come after Elisha? What's going to happen? Who's going to protect Israel? The army is weak. Elisha tells him, God's going to give you victory. God's going to give you a victory at Aphek over Syria. It was a message of hope. And then Elisha said, take the arrows and he took them, and then he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. Now, this probably means shoot them outside the same window, but just shoot them into the ground. So he had five or six arrows. He said he didn't tell him how many. He didn't tell him to stop. He just said, take the arrows and shoot them. And so it says, and he struck the ground, or he struck three times and stopped. Now, Elisha didn't tell him to stop. He just stopped. He did three times and he stopped. And it made Elisha angry. So then the man of God was angry with him and said, 
you should have struck the ground, should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. You're doing the same thing Ahab did. You could have had complete victory. And instead, you're going to settle for three measly wins when you could have completely destroyed them. Elisha was angry. It was a righteous anger because there could have been victory. And so we have to wonder, what, what is going on here? Um, the king should have emptied his quiver. He didn't. What, 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 why did he not do that? What, what was happening here? Well, the king was either half-hearted in his approach or he didn't really understand what was going on here spiritually. I believe he did understand what was happening. Uh, he obviously had respect for Elisha. He knew who Elisha was. And I, I believe he, he was, his faith was weak. And he was not as strong spiritually as he should have been. He was not zealous for God. And so because of his weak faith, Israel would not experience deliverance. They would only experience a few victories, but not as much as it could have been. So Elisha was angry at the king's weak faith and failure to trust God to deliver Israel. One source wrote, the king was full of respect, but not full of faith. Well, he respected Elisha, but he didn't have faith that God would fully deliver them. Had the king used all of his arrows, the Syrians would have been completely destroyed. As it was, God would give Israel three victories, and that was it. And that came true. Look down in verse 25, the last part of the, the chapter. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. He got three victories, but he could have had a lot more. One source wrote, God gave him a blank check, but he only cashed half of it. The king missed his golden opportunity. This brings us to our first of two main points, and I've got some application for you at the end. But first of two main points. The deliverance we experienced we experience is based on the faith we display. The deliverance that you and I experience is based on the faith we display. The victory or deliverance that Israel could have experienced was based on the amount of faith the king demonstrated. The king did not trust in God enough to deliver them. And I wonder how many Christians today do not experience the full victory that is ours in Christ. How many walk around defeated, under the weight, they feel trapped underneath the weight of some struggle? Now, I know we still have a sin nature. You read Romans 7. I understand there are still struggles, and there are times we said, oh, wretched man that I am, and there's, there are things that we, that we feel defeated at times because we have a sin nature, and we're still, we're still sinners, even though we're redeemed. So I understand that. But there is a measure of victory that God can give us in the Christian life. Paul says we're more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. We are more than conquerors. There is victory. Romans 6, 11 says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, when you and I become Christians, we are no longer slaves to sin. And we're no longer slaves to the sinful flesh. Now I'm a slave to Jesus. He is my king. And so when those temptations, those urges come back, I don't have to give in to them. I can say, no, I belong to Jesus. I'm dead to sin, but I'm alive to God in Christ. And so I don't, I don't have to feel defeated. I don't have to give in to those urges. I don't have to give in to those temptations, whatever they are, if it's anger, lust, whatever it is. I'm alive to God in Christ. And I wonder how many 
Christians are not experiencing that victorious Christian life. Yes, they're forgiven. Yes, they're saved. But you're not experiencing the, the victory that we have in Christ. The English Puritan John Owen years ago, he wrote this. He wrote a, one of his works called The Mortification of Sin. That's not, that's not a word you hear very often today, mortification. But that, that's what he called it. This is what he said. The mortification of indwelling sin remaining in our mortal bodies, that it may not have life and power to bring forth the works or deeds of the flesh, is a constant duty of believers. His point was put sin to death in your body. Don't manage it. Mortify it. Eliminate it as best you can from your life. Don't just manage it and say, well, I'm always going to be this way. I'm always going to have this struggle. I'm always going to be an angry person. You know, I'm not going to have any victory. No, Jesus can give you victory. We are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Sin should not just be managed in our lives. It must be mortified. It needs to die. And I wonder, maybe that is that why so few people are drawn to Christ? Because they don't see Christians living any differently. They don't see victory. They say, well, they got, they're doing the same thing I'm doing. They're talking the same way I talk. They're, you know, they struggle the same way I do. There ought to be victory. Because Jesus has given us deliverance. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. One day, a lady named Keisha was standing outside the W Hotel in New York City. And she had the the impression that someone was staring at her. Uh, You've probably had that feeling. You think, someone's just looking at me. So she she looked, and sure enough, there was a a handsome uh, gentleman that that was staring at her. And he walked up to her and she was a beautiful young lady. She's, she's modeled for Pantene and Maybelline and other things. And so he, he certainly thought she was very pretty. And he went up to her and he said, you are the most beautiful woman I have ever seen in my life. He said, would you give me the honor of giving me your number? I, I'd, I'd love to take you out. Now, can you imagine just a stranger saying that to you? She, she said no at first, and then she started walking off, and she thought, well, you know, he was a nice-looking man. And so she turned around and went back, and he was still there. And the two began talking, and they began dating. They fell in love. And about two years after this, she went. he was from Nigeria. His name was Kunli. And so Kunli and Keisha went to Nigeria to meet Kunli's family. And Kunli introduced Keisha to his mother. And his mother saw her, and she said, oh, my princess, and and. She didn't really think anything about it. And, but later, they, the family were sitting down talking, and the mother began to explain to Keisha who her son was. You see, her son was Prince Kunli. He was a prince. He was part of the royal family of, of Nigeria. And she had no idea. For two years, she had no idea she's dating the prince of Nigeria. Now, the two ended up getting married, and so now she's a part of the royal family. And those rights and privileges are now partly hers because she's married into the family. And I wonder how many Christians today really understand that we are royalty. We are children of the king. And those rights and privileges as forgiven and free from our sin, they belong to us as children of God. And I I wonder how many Christians are living below the privileges that they have in Christ. We are forgiven and there is power, there's resurrection power available to us. Oh, it's, it's, it's encouraging, word of God. And so finally in verse 20, it says, Elisha died. Elisha would have been about 80 years old. 
had decades of service to our Lord. We've seen in weeks past how God used him many, many times. He used him on the international stage. He used him in personal relationships. You think about the the Shunammite woman, and, and God used him. And it says he died and they buried him. Now, when we, re- when we read of Abraham's death, it said he was an old man. He was full of years. Or when you, you read of Job's death, it says he was an old man and full of days. But when you read of Elisha's death, you don't, you don't see that. It doesn't say he was full of days. It just said, so Elisha died and they buried him. And I think there's a reason for that. I believe because God was not finished with him yet. God still had one more miracle to do through Elisha's life, and we're about to see what that was. Typically, in the spring of year, bands of Moabites would invade the land and because there were crops there for them and for their, their horses. It said, now bands of this, verse 20, now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. So as these bands of Moabites come in, the Moabites are from east of the Dead Sea, as they were approaching Israel, they caused a disturbance. Verse 21 says a man was being buried. So the Moabites are coming, and meanwhile over here, there's another group that is getting ready to bury a man. Now, in that time, people were not buried in caskets. They were wrapped up, and they were placed in a grave, in a tomb carved out of the rock or some type of a cave. And so they were preparing to bury this man, and all of a sudden, they, they, these Moabites were coming. They realized, oh, we better get out of here. These Moabites are coming. And so these graves, you could easily remove a rock and, and, and other bodies would be thrown in there. And so because they were startled and the Moabites are coming, they just did what probably the closest grave to them. And so they opened and they, they threw the man's dead body into this grave. And they probably got out of there as quick as they could because these Moabites were coming. Well, when that happened, it says the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. Now, I, I don't know if they knew that was Elisha's grave or not, but nonetheless, the man's body touched Elisha's. And now Elisha's, I take this, he's been dead for some time now because all that's left is his bones. It says, and as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. And can you imagine that? Can you imagine being that man? You died. We're not told how he died, but they threw his body. It t- they touched the bones of Elisha, and boom, he's, he's, resur- he's resuscitated back to life. And, and, and he, he, can you imagine him coming out of that tomb? And I wonder if he just hollered at his buddies, you know, hey, hey, wait for me. They had just thrown him in the grave, and now he's coming after them. And I, I just, you just have to, we're not told, but Use your sanctified imagination. What, what would that have been like? What would those men have been thinking? Um, they, were, they were shocked, I'm sure. And so Elijah, Elijah went into heaven without dying, but Elisha died, and God brought someone to life through his bones. Now, what does this miracle mean? This is so interesting. This was a miracle of great hope for Israel. Remember the context. Now, if you flip over, you just look in chapter 17, in the ninth year, and this is verse 6, the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, captured Samaria. That was in 722 B.C. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. So they're going to go into captivity. So things were dark. Israel was trapped. There was no hope. 
But in the midst of this, God gave them hope. This was a message of hope. The reason is a key word in this miracle is the word thrown in verse 21. It says they, the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. The same word thrown is used in verse 23. I want to read verse 23 to you, and I'll explain what it means. But the Lord was gracious to them, that is to Israel, and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them. Isn't that amazing? He turned toward a rebellious people. He turned toward idol-worshiping people. Why? Well, because of his covenant, because he was faithful to his word, because God has made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them, nor has he cast, that's the same word, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. That same word for throw is translated as cast here. This man was thrown into the grave and he came alive. God is saying, I will not throw you away from me. I will not cast you. God is saying, I will be faithful to you. I will remember my covenant. And though you may go into exile, you will come back to life. Just as this man was revived, you too will be revived, Israel. There is hope for you. You will come back from this exile. You will live again. You will have a relationship with me. Though you were dead now, you will be alive. And ultimately, it refers to when Jesus will come back and the dead are raised in Christ, the hope of resurrection. But for the, the person in exile reading this, this would have been incredible hope to think, oh, there's a future. Oh, this is not the final word. Death will not have the final say. Exile, the Assyrians, they will not have the last word. Jesus will have the last word. And I will not stay dead forever. We will not stay exiled forever. God will bring us back. It's amazing. God would rescue them. Hope was not lost. He would revive them. He would resurrect them. The promises of God would not fail. In spite of the king's lack of faith, God would be faithful to his word and to his people. It's amazing. Why, why would he do that? Because he's God? Because he's an awesome God? Some of this language here reminds us of Exodus 34. Remember when, when the Lord revealed himself to Moses? The Lord, the Lord, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and mercy. Some of that sounds like the language here. God is faithful, and he just chose to have mercy on his people. It's, oh, what an awesome God we serve. Our second main and final point is this. The deliverance we experience is based on God's power. The, the deliverance we experience is based on God's power. The dead man coming out of the grave, he, he couldn't claim that he did anything. He was dead. God chose to give him life again. He chose to revive him. It was obvious that a miracle had happened. Our salvation in Christ is a miracle. We can't take any credit for it because we all come to Christ the same way, and that's through faith, by his grace. Romans 3.27 says this, then what becomes of our boasting? You know, are, are we supposed to boast that, you know, you did something to get to God or I did this to get to Jesus? And Paul said, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. We all come to Christ by faith. So there's, there's, no, there's no boasting. This man had nothing to boast about. All he could say was, God gave me life again. Uh, God brought me back to life. And so uh, what, what, a, what a, a message of hope for the people of God. I have four quick application points I want to share with you, just based 
on these two stories here. First, your ministry does not end even though your career might. Your ministry does not end even though your career might. Elisha was still serving the Lord even though he was sick and about to die. He had one final word of hope and victory for Israel even though he was ill. Some of you, your career, your working career may be over and you may be considered a retiree, but, but you don't retire from ministry. You may have more time now than you, you ever had or maybe you've had since you were a, a teenager or in your 20s. And so use it. Use that time for ministry. Get involved in a local school. You can be a tutor in a school, serve in a homeless shelter, disciple someone, keep doing ministry. Here's Elisha. The king didn't come to him. He didn't say, well, no, I'm retired now. I, I, I don't have time to, to entertain you, king. Now, Elisha was concerned about the future and even got angry here because here's a man not, not taking God at his word. So you see him still engaged in ministry. Second, utilize your silent years instead of dreading them. Utilize your silent years instead of dreading them. There's at least 40 or 50 years here in the text where we don't know anything about Elisha. We're not told anything about him. We don't know what he was doing. We take it he was still being faithful. He was serving God in the midst of a dark generation. But he was faithful. So stay faithful in the silent years. Some of you are in the midst of the silent years now. You're at home all day with children, and, and, and nobody really recognizes you, and nobody, you, you feel overlooked. You feel forgotten probably at times. And there may be silent years, but, but use them for the glory of God. You don't have to dread them. Use them for the kingdom of God. Uh, some of you may be in a support role at your job. There's, you may be in the shadow. You may be off stage. Silent years. But you can use those silent years that will give you a testimony in your, in your later years when you're no longer silent. God will give you a voice. Third, give Jesus everything you have. Give Jesus everything you have. Don't be a three-strike Christian like the king was. So I'm just going to shoot three times even though I have three or four left. Don't, don't, don't be half-hearted in prayer. Don't be half-hearted in your Bible study. Don't be half-hearted in your giving. Give him everything. Give, give him everything you have. There, there are a few things that irritate me more than seeing a sports team that has so much talent but never, never fulfills its potential. For whatever reason, maybe there's bickering, maybe there's, they're just not playing hard, but when you see a team that is filled with a lot of talent, you want to see them reach their potential. And when they don't, it's frustrating. And I want you to reach your potential. I want to reach my potential for the Lord. So let's, let's use the gifts we have. Let's use the the energy, the strength, the breath that we have. And let's go all out for Jesus. Fourth, our greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may occur after we die. Our greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may occur after we die. I read one source that says, this was a crowning miracle of Elisha's life. And it happened after he died. He wasn't even alive to see it. But according to this writer, this was his greatest miracle. Your greatest miracle may happen when you're, you're already with Jesus in heaven. You could arrange your finances in such a way that when you die, you could make your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God. Have you ever thought about that? Some of you are pouring into children right now and your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God, maybe 20 or 30 years from now, 
You, you may not see the fruit of what you are doing right now because you're investing them, you're loving them, you're teaching them the word of God and your children or grandchildren. And you may, you may never see that. You may never see them live for Christ. You may never see them go to the mission field, but you made an investment in them and you're doing that now. 17 years, or I'm sorry, 17 days after the miners were trapped underground in Chile, they sent up a note in red. The note said, we are fine in the shelter, the 33 of us. You see, on the day of their entrapment, they divided themselves into groups and they, or they had an organized schedule. They would spend time in prayer. They would spend time, they had jobs to do. They had different shifts in which they, they, had, they had sleeping patterns and um, they rationed their food supplies. Meanwhile, workers above ground were working feverishly, trying to figure out how to keep these men alive and how to get them out of there. And so they had, they had a pipe where they would send food down in there. They would send medicine down in there. They had a second pipe. They would pump compressed air down in there so they could breathe fresh air. They, they sent a TV screen down in there. I have no idea how they did that. They sent a TV screen so they could watch television. And they even, they were allowed to have short phone calls with their loved ones and on video. That way they could, it would help them psychologically. As the men waited, a large hole began drilling above them. 33 days, they drilled this hole straight through 20, over 2,000 feet of granite, solid granite. The hole was 28 inches wide. Finally, it was time to attempt the rescue. And so they took this little capsule called the Phoenix and they lowered it. It took 15 minutes to get all the way down to the bottom. And after 69 days trapped in that mine, Florencio Avalos went up and reached the top. He came out, people were cheering. The world was watching. The president and first lady of Chile were there to greet him. People were going crazy. And then one after one, 22 hours, they finally got all 33 men out of there. They survived, no long-term effects. Now it would have been silly for the miners to have taken any credit for that rescue. They were trapped. It was only by the grace of God that they were delivered. And it's only by the grace of God that you and I are delivered from our sin. We can only be delivered through our faith in Jesus Christ. But once we're delivered, there's victory. There is victory in Jesus Christ. And my friend, I wanna encourage you, live a victorious Christian life, just like Elisha did. Trust him. Give him your best. And God will use your life like he did Elisha's. Let's pray about it. Father, I thank you for the life of Elisha. We've grown uh, to love him as we've looked at his life over the last few months. Elisha reminds us of the Lord Jesus Christ. So many miracles and how the Lord Jesus, Elisha wept, Jesus wept. Elisha raised a, a boy from the dead. Jesus did that too. So we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that there's victory in Christ. Yes, there's forgiveness, but there's victory. So Father, I pray you'd encourage those listening tonight. Maybe they need a word of hope that in you, there's not just forgiveness, but there's victory. 
So I pray you'd bring encouragement. I pray you'd lift whatever the struggle is that some are experiencing tonight with depression or anxiety or fear. Lord, Father, would you break that and lift that in the name of Jesus and give them victory. We're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us. Thank you for your word. Father, please apply it to our hearts so we may live differently and have opportunities to point others to Jesus Christ. We pray in his wonderful name. Amen. My friends, I hope you'll join us Sunday. Pastor will be here delivering the word of God. I look forward to it. I hope look forward to seeing you then. God bless. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.